It's episode 755. It's Friday and Sarah's back in the hot seat. There's more newbie questions. How are you coping after it all? Are you emotional? Like, not good. I think my setup for this podcast should have been kind of indicative of my mindset. I just spilled a mug of coffee all over the brand new table and then kicked the factor bike onto the ground, nearly smashed it, all but inside 30 seconds. There was a time in Colombia, I thought, you definitely used up one of my lives. Anthony couldn't speak to me for about two hours after. He was pale after watching me almost getting knocked down. It's a little bit of a, a waste of time. You did to manage go to follow. sneak into the team dinner. Oh, I did. <laughs> Sarah, welcome back to the hot seat. It's good to be back. We had a kind of a pre-recorded episode last week. Uh, we did it through the magic of the internet and pre-recording while you were winging your way around the Ross. You're home a couple of days now. But before we get into the Ross, actually, because I know you are keen to talk about it. And I, <laughs> Am I? We've literally not talked about anything else for the last week because my news in the evenings would just be about the stage rather than anything that happened during the day. But it's our first time ever doing newbie questions in the new studio. Ah, yes. And it is pretty fly, isn't it? It's gorgeous. <laughs> Feeling very proud. The only thing is I don't have a seat. You seem to have taken... I don't know, is this, there's some kind of hierarchy here which goes against all of the normal gentleman female rules where you get the seat and I stand. I don't have to hierarchy, it's my podcast. <laughs> we'll see. You're we'll a see. supporting character, <laughs> and the main character. We'll see. Anyway, the Ross, Anthony, how are you coping after it all? Are you emotional? Like, not good. I think my setup for this podcast should have been kind of indicative of my mindset. I just spilled a mug of coffee all over the brand new table and then kicked the factor bike onto the ground, nearly smashed it, all but inside 30 seconds. And you tried to kind of start a row with me this morning when I tried to get you going to do a little bit of work. So tell me about this. Now, it's a phenomenon you spoke to me about before when you come off the Ross and you kind of have this almost like a low feeling because... You've had a full week of the thrills and the fast pacing and people taking care of you and moving, moving, moving. So how are you? Talk about that first of all. Post-stage race blues, I call it. I coined that myself. (laughs) Anyone else out there suffering from it can copy it. Before you move on to that, I have caught you at some stages where you've had the Ross stare, where I'll just look over at Anthony and he's like kind of in, in this different realm. His eyes have glassed over completely just from the fatigue well, it's like, so you have task switch. So if you're, you have a bunch of emails to do and then you also have a creative project to do. You have this sort of well-documented and I've even had podcasts on task switch. It's that cost of moving from one task onto the next. It's not instantaneous. There's a little lag in between the two. So I like to think of that that's on a micro level. On a macro level, you consume yourself with one activity and one routine, which is military precision driven for an entire week it takes a little bit of an adjustment period to get back to a different task, a different setup, because you're getting up in the morning and literally, I'll explain one day, because every day is rinse and repeat. You're getting up in the morning, your breakfast, you're back up to the room, pinning numbers, commuting to the stage, stage warm-up, stage recovery, commute back, debrief, team meeting, dinner, massage, go again. That's it, every single day. It's Groundhog Day. And then when you're in the bunch, it's just so highly stimulated because you need to be absolutely clued in for every meter of the 770 kilometers we rode 
last week because if you're not, it can have catastrophic consequences. So you're dealing with surface, other riders, motorbikes in the peloton, cars, and, you know, you would hope no other random occurrences like a dog running out into the bunch, which happened one of the days and caused a massive stack up. So, yeah, it's just, it's full on and very different to the normal week I live. It seemed like a very fast Ross. I, I don't know if that's just because I this has been my first Ross that I followed Anthony around to see. So I'm not really quite used to seeing you race at that level and those speeds. But every morning the uh, Ross Talton would send out an estimated time of when the race would arrive in the, you know, the destination town. And you guys were always like at least 45 minutes quicker than they had expected. It just seemed very speedy. There wasn't a breath of wind all week. Was it? Oh, <laughs> fabulous. Those are my kind of days out. You could have won the Ross. <laughs> I loved going around and seeing, you know, everyone has been asking me, how, did I go and, you know, follow the Ross around? You know, like a big fan you girl. You would have broke up. <laughs> like a fan girl. But there's no point in going to every single stage. I went to the start. I went to the Castle Bar finish because that's the team that Anthony was riding for this year. And then I went to the finish and that was enough because you don't get to see the person that you're following. As soon as the race is over, they're bundled into the team van. They're straight off to the B&B to get fed and get recovery drinks and all that kind of stuff. It's a little bit of a, a waste of time. You did to manage to sneak into the team dinner. Oh, I did. <laughs> I think everyone was looking at me going, what's she doing here? I was just there for the entertainment value. <laughs> anyway, the Ross is over and now we've set our eyes on two more challenges. My training has started in earnest, really, for the Wicklow 200. I'm a bit late. <laughs> I never know what that means when people say in earnest. It means, it you're, giving cool. it means you're giving it socks finally, I think. <laughs> All right, my mom used to say that to me about studying for leaving. So I said, oh, you've started in earnest. <laughs> I don't know what that was. It was like a place, like in the library. <laughs> it's, a, it's a frame of mind, I think. And Anthony has started the preparation for the migration gravel ride in Kenya. You're going to be leaving in about, I think, three and a half weeks' time, Anthony. It looks amazing. I'm, I'm not usually jealous of you going over to these races to torture yourself for, you know, a week, two weeks. But this one does look particularly cool. I'm a little bit intimidated by the migration gravel race. I did say last week I'm going to do a full podcast on it and I definitely will do a full podcast on it. I just need to recover from this Ross-induced fatigue. But I'm a little intimidated because I've never been to Africa and there's a lot of logistical difficulties with transport. There's also, I haven't made life any easier because I've decided to do a one-day gravel race called a safari gravel race, which is three days before the migration gravel race. Can I interject that that looks so cool as well. That is in the area where the Lion King was based. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so jealous. I want to go. Do you know, there's actually one more race. Um, I don't think I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it because I've already booked flights, but there is the Evolution gravel race, which is another three-day race, which starts two days after the migration gravel race. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're never coming home. No, I'm not going to do that. Flights are booked, so you know, I just need to make my peace with getting a hammer in for a week. It'll be enough for me. Absolutely. Will we crack into the questions because there's loads. Dive in. Okay, question number one, and this is from Jack Butler. Hello, Sarah. I have a question for you to ask Anthony. I have a giant Propel. It has 
Gavia Tired, Gavia Tires on it, Giant's own brand. Is there any benefit to training on tires with a higher rolling resistance and then changing to something like a GP5000 a month before the race starts? So this guy is kind of wondering if he trains on tires that, you know, that aren't as speedy, does he get these kind of gains that kind of transfer when he gets onto speedier tires? Uh, it's it's like the idea of if I train with a backpack on my back full of lead going uphill, will I be faster when I take the backpack off? Like, no, you would have, you know, you could have just rode a little bit harder without the backpack and gone the same power. So it's a little bit of one of those ones that's very old school in its thinking because, you know, 200 watts is 200 watts regardless of what your setup is. If I'm struggling to pull a positive for training on, bad tires the downside of training on bad tires it's actually not the high rolling resistance i don't mind that it's if i don't trust the tire through a corner the potential slip risk gp5000 there you know i race on gp5000 s the tubeless ready ones and they're amazing tires so grippy and i don't know what giants own brand tires are like but if they're slippy i would definitely it's definite no no don't ride on them at all if you're looking to save your GP5000s, that's a potential benefit from wear and tear and use a cheaper tire that came with it. I don't think there's a problem with that at all. I think that's a, a good move. And, you know, you're just going to train to your zones with your, you know, lesser training tires. And then you'll still train or race to your zones when you get back onto your race tires. And you really love having race day tires, don't you? It's kind of... It's like a, a thing that you do before a race is put your race wheels on. It's... You know, it's become less of a... That used to be absolute ironclad for me because I had race wheels, which had race tires, and they never seen tarmac except during a race. But recently the trend's kind of gone away from that because no one ever trained on carbon rims before. Like if you went out training on carbon rims, people would look at you like you would four heads on. Like, what is this fella up to? But now everyone's training on carbon rims, so it's totally just the norm. So I don't change back and forth between race and training wheels as much. Stages Cranks and Stages Dash Bike Computer are today's show sponsors. I've used Stages Power Meters for the better part of a decade. First on my road bike, then on the tandem, and now off-road on my gravel and mountain bike. I really trust the consistency of the data that it gives me. It's been proven to be plus or minus 1.5% accurate. They're also super light. I think it adds about 20 grams to the weight of my crank. And a feature I love is the battery is so replaceable. It's a small little watch battery that you can pick up in any convenience store. I'm pairing my Stages crank with a Dash L200 bike computer, which I absolutely love. You can use it in portrait or landscape mode, which is kind of cool. The battery is so, so good. It'll last between 10 and 18 hours, and I've tested this depending on the mode you use. So it's going to last even my longest events this season. And the maps feature is absolutely amazing for when you're out on the trails. The color coding makes it virtually impossible to get lost. So if you're looking to get your hands on a Stages crank set or you're looking to get your hands on the Stages Dash L200, which I'm using at the moment, all the information you need, it's over on stagescycling.com. The link to that is in today's show notes. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This is from Neil McHugh. Hello, Neil. Recently, I was told to take my dust caps off my valves by a more senior rider. Before I could ask why, the chain gang moved up and he was gone. What's the story with this? Does it make the bike more aero? <laughs> Did you just look naff? <laughs> the, like, even the idea of dust caps, like dust doesn't get into your valves. 
That's weird. Like your wheel is torn and dust accumulates on stuff that's stationary. Dust accumulates on your bookshelf in the corner. I don't think it accumulates in your valves at 40k an hour as it's spinning around. Potential use for dust caps is if you're out on gravel, if you're riding a mountain bike and you're going through some seriously thick muck and you don't want to get the valve clogged up. Yeah, but I think they look a bit naff, but it's preference really. Yeah, I think if you come out in our roadman's pain and you're, you have your dust caps on, people will be whispering about you. <laughs> Definitely take them off. I went into the local bike shop 360 in Clintarf and I needed them to put a little bit of air in my tires. This is just before the spin. I hadn't checked them before I left. And the guy was so nice. He was so friendly, so accommodating, put a little bit of air in. And he was like, oh, you've no dust cap. Let me put a dust cap on for you. And I was like, hell no. <laughs> I'll never be able to show my face around again if I put a dust cap on. But I think my my hatred of them, not hatred of them, my sort of inbred uh, reluctance to use them, it's when my dad was teaching me how to fix a puncture at the very start. So you have the weird little tension and screw that comes with it as well. So he took the tube out of the box and you have the little tension and screw that screws across the valve and the dust cap. And I was like, what do you do with those two bits? And he's like, you throw them in the bin. So I was like, okay. So I just learned that those two bits get thrown in the bin. They're totally useless. You've become your dad, Anthony, because that's the exact same thing you've just answered the question with and how you responded to me when I asked you about dust caps before. So Neil, just put them in the bin. You don't need them. You'll look cooler without them on your bike. Okay, question number three. And this is from at Forrester 111. Anthony, a question for you after the Ross. And this is probably prompted by a photo of you I saw on Sticky Ball. That wasn't a good week. photo. That was not a good photo. <laughs> Oh, where you looked shattered. I'm going to use, I'm going to see if we can use that photo in the thumbnail for this episode Don't because <laughs> you look a bit worse for wear. In fact, I think Sticky Bottle contacted you before to make sure that it was okay to use that photo. <laughs> Just to double check because <laughs> it, may, it may have done your reputation a little bit of damage. Anyway, Forrester 101 goes on. What do you think about when it gets really tough at those moments when you're hanging on to the wheel in front of you by a thread and every fibre in your body is telling you to give up? Surely you can't be in the zone all the time and there are moments of doubt that creep in. How do you quieten this voice stroke feeling? That is an amazing question. Yeah, Forrester, that's a, it's a good question. Uh, I, I was talking to Sarah yesterday. We went out on a road ride and you were on the wheel. I'm not sure if you remember this, Sarah. You were on the wheel and it was like, I was slowly just cranking up, cranking up, cranking up as you were on the wheel. And then at a point, you inevitably got dropped. And I was saying to you after, like a lot of the time, what you're looking for is that moment. You're looking for that moment of, will I quit? Will I not quit? That's what all the training's been for. That's what all the sacrifice is for. That's the reason all your friends aren't doing the race. That's the reason that, you know, you've trained so hard and you've dedicated a large part of your life to this goal. So when you get to that moment, like it's the moment you've been waiting for. It's not the moment to fold and give in and see as a sign that it's not for you. It's a moment to go, yeah, all the preparation that I've done to get here, it's right now. Now's the time to roll the sleeves up. When it gets super hard, I, I don't do it so much anymore. I'm just like, now I just have a, you know, a knowledge based on experience that inevitably the pace will slow at some point. As you step up the levels, the 
time to the pace slowing is longer and longer. But if you're doing a sportive, a Saturday race, you know, cut three, two, one, it slows pretty soon. You know, it's, it doesn't stay on forever. As you step up the levels to pro races, and I can only imagine world tour races, it takes a longer time to slow. But I used to count in my head and just say, okay, I'm about to get dropped. I can't hold this much longer. But if there's a gun to my head, I could definitely hold it for 10 more seconds. So I'm like, there is a gun to my head. Let's hold it for 10 more seconds. And then I do a 10 to 1 countdown. And then when I get there, I'd be like, okay, could I, with a gun to the head, do 10 more seconds? And I told this to a former Scouse teammate of mine going into an eight-day stage race one year. And I seen him on the last day and I was like, how are you getting on? And he said, I've been counting to 10 since we left eight days ago. <laughs> That's what I did when we climbed Alto de Letras. I was just counting to 15 the entire eight hours. Well, you probably gone too hard. Like, <laughs> why would you just not slow down a bit? Well, like, I didn't want to go up. The, I didn't want it to take me 12 hours to get the bloody thing. I think the other thing that you often speak to me about, Anthony, is that negative voice that creeps into your head. The inner bitch. The inner bitch. And I certainly have that. We have a section of the Roban Saturday spin that kind of gets a bit spicy. The lads try and race each other and I always just try and hang on to the wheel. Anthony will usually kind of hang back and, you know, tell me to stay on X wheel or he'll give me a little bit of encouragement. There's points of it where I'm like, I can't, I can't do it, Aunt. I can't, I'm out, I'm dropping back. And it's just that negative speak that you're always talking to me about that if you kind of even just change that to I can even for another another five seconds that that does help do you find yourself actually doing that ever or are you just such an old pro at this stage that you know you don't even think negatively when you're out there well like that negative voice it doesn't stop on the bike that negative voice runs all day long for people you know, whatever they're trying to do, whatever task they're trying to accomplish, whether they don't see themselves as good enough to accomplish a certain task or, you know, worthy enough to build a certain product. A lot of people struggle with that negative voice. And it's something, you know, luckily, I don't think it's true any, you know, self-discovery or environmental thing. I think it's just basically looked. I've never had that negative voice. I've normally just, you know, seen a task and tried to break it down into its constituent parts and said, okay, can I accomplish each of these parts? And if I do, will I get this outcome? And it's like, yeah, I can. So on the bike, it's like, well, can I get to the finish line? And then it's kind of deconstructing that and going, okay, well, where are the key points where this is going to be a challenge for me? Well, like I'm 78 kilograms at the moment. So a key point is going to be going up a category two climb. So how can I mitigate against that? Well, I can have good position into the climb. So it's trying to deconstruct it. And I, I try to do that with everything and not just bike rides. Anthony, I ride 10 to 12 hours per week. I would say I eat healthy, but enjoy the odd treat or beer. I can't seem to shake weight. If I'm honest, I could do with losing about 11 or 12 kilos. Can you give me the top three things I need to do? At this stage, I'm willing to throw a bit of money behind it as clearly I can't figure it out on my own. I think there are two different things. If you want to throw a bit of money at it, hire a nutritionist and they're going to give you, you know, very specific hand-holding that you can do there. If you want the top three things, I think you can probably figure this out on your own with a little bit of discipline. I think you can park the 10 to 12 hours a week. Like, I'm not saying don't ride the 10 to 12 hours a week, but for the purpose of losing weight, just ignore the fact. It could be 20 hours a week, it could be six hours a week. You're not going to out-train a bad diet. If you're going to lose weight, that has to be with a calorie deficit in the kitchen. So, some of the stuff that's really worked for me in the past, especially cutting some weight into the Ross, between the Ross Moon and Ross, I had to chop a little bit of weight. Get really boring with your diet. 
have the same meals or close to the same meals every single day of the week, counting calories works. Like running a daily calorie deficit works. So I would say, you know, look to run 400 calorie deficit to 500 calorie deficit a day and don't replace 100% of your target calories. I think this is a mistake a lot of riders make where they do a two-hour ride and then they look at their Garmin and go, okay, cool, I burned 900 calories. Now I can have a 12-inch pizza. I don't think those wearables, and I know, Sarah, you had a podcast totally on the accuracy of these wearables, but I don't think they represent your total calorie burn. At least they haven't for me in the past. If I replaced every single calorie that my you know, Garmin stages, Wahoo, by computer, said I should, I've bored through the years, I'd be an absolute whale of a yoke. <laughs> whale of a yoke. Very Irish colloquialism there. Um, okay, I think I have a couple of points as well. And I actually drew a lot of inspiration from your guest, Hannah Grant, a couple of weeks ago. She's the chef. She's chefed with loads of the pro teams. Number one, she said the biggest thing that leisure cyclists can do to cut weight is cut out the booze. And I know that you mentioned that you have a couple of beers. And number two, her next point was up your protein goals and have massive amount of protein with every single meal. And that will keep you satiated and help you recover from your spins. And yeah, Anthony is right. We, for about four or five weeks here in our apartment, we basically ate the same meal for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And we got into a rhythm with it and it worked. It really did work. No snacking, same meals that are completely balanced. And we both lost weight through it. But you know, actually, just to elaborate on that uh, alcohol one, Sarah, I was chatting to a buddy of mine who also happens to be a client and he's trying to shed a little bit of weight at the moment. He's going through a tough time. He just can't catch a break with catching sicknesses, injuries, stuff going on at work. But he's starting to now try to take a positive out of the situation he's in. So we've got all this crap going on in his life. It's like, well, where, where can he get a small win? So he's starting to look at his calories, even though he's still injured. Can he run a daily calorie deficit? But he messaged me yesterday, and I think he said he was having three or four flat whites a day. If you're drinking calories at the moment, it's the number one like secret for cutting weight. Get rid of calories that you're drinking. You know, moving from a flat white to an Americano. It's a negligible difference. Stop drinking Coke, move to Coke Zero. I know you have aspartame and, you know, gut microbiome problems and stuff with that. But if you're talking strictly on calorie deficit, moving to the zero sugar alternatives, you know, just stop drinking calories. Yeah, amazing point. Amazing point. Okay, next question. This is from Amy Sargent. Love the show, guys. I'm newish to cycling and have joined a club and I'm following the Giro d'Italia for the first time ever. I'm slowly getting to grips with all the races within races, tactics, etc. A few weeks ago, you spoke about Ben Healy. A listener wrote in to see if you had background details on him. Can you do the same for Eddie Dunbar? I've been following him closely in the Giro and I'd love to know more about his background and about how he came up through the ranks. So Eddie is an absolute legend in our cycling. Ben Healy, an absolutely brilliant rider. I don't want to take anything away from Ben, but as somebody that the Irish public connects to, Ben Healy didn't come through the Irish system. He's not a product of grassroots cycling. Eddie Dunbar is. Eddie Dunbar is a product of the Cantorque system and Dan Corton down there, who just does an amazing job. They've even built a velodrome down in Cantorque. 
It's phenomenal system they have down there, and they're just bringing you know a conveyor belt of riders through. And Eddie Dunbar is the cream of the crop down there. I'm pretty sure he's from Bantir in Cork, but I could be wrong. He could be somewhere between Bantir and Cantork. Eddie came up and he lit the junior scene up in Ireland. You know, he's winning junior tour. He was competing for the biggest prizes in senior races when he was already a junior. And he's been a talent that we've all known about here for a long time. But he's just an absolutely lovely lad. When you chat to him, he's just a lad. Like I messaged him yesterday saying, you know, best of luck in the last week of the Giro. And like he's straight back, you know, instantly. There's no ego about him. There's no arrogance about him. And he hasn't changed since he's a kid. He's a proper bike rider. I think he's sitting now fifth on GC in the Giro d'Italia, which is amazing. And that interview is really, really funny as well. It gives a real insight into his personality. He's completely honest about some nights he was out on the piss, out having a few beers, wakes up in someone's garden. I don't know, I can't remember. Oh, he but fell it was and very he cracked funny. his head off the counter to chipper, was the story he's telling us. And I think that actually got back to Ineos then after the podcast, which didn't work out brilliant Uh-oh. for him at the time. <laughs> Uh oh, but yeah, we are rooting big time for Eddie. We are huge fans here in the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Okay, last question, Anthony. It's a quick one, I think. And I think your answer might surprise people as well. Anthony, I'm new to cycling and nervous on the road. Do you think that bike wing mirrors are a good idea? Now, I would have said you straight away, you would have been like, no, they're like the dust caps. It's a style thing. You should be able to look around. But when we were in Mallorca recently, a lot of cyclists had these. You know what, they're sartorial faux pas, number one. Like, <laughs> you know, if I see you with wing mirrors, I'm staying the hell away from you. Yeah, it's just like, it's like a big flashing neon sign yeah. saying, danger, danger, this person can't handle their bike. But if I look at newbie cyclists, and you still see this in the bunch in road races, it was Remco caused a huge crash in the first week of Giro doing exactly this. Remco's a world champion, if anyone doesn't know. So if the world champion's causing crashes doing this, you know, you can be sure it's a problem for your average club rider. When you turn over your shoulder and you look right, your bike goes right. It's very hard to keep going in a straight line when you look over your shoulder. So to combat this, full-time pro riders, even experienced club guys, you will see them coming up to the rider beside them, putting their right hand on a club rider's left shoulder to balance themselves and then turning around. That makes sure they're still going the straight line as they look around. This is a difficult enough skill to do, and I don't recommend you try it if you haven't tried it before. Maybe try it on grass or something. Wing mirrors, very, very naff. But, you know, I'm not convinced that there's not a, like there's not an iteration or there's not a different way we can implement these wing mirrors to give vision to riders behind. Because if you're turning, you know, and you need to see what's coming from behind to find a gap in the traffic and you're a beginner cyclist, how do you do this? I'm not convinced that there's not some innovation around this we can do to get rid of those naff-looking wing mirrors because I actually think, think it's dangerous. If you crash, there's a lever on the side of your helmet. I don't think that's good. I think that's going to hurt and it's not going to work out very well for you. But how do we do that? And maybe this has turned into a brainstorming session. How do we give that visibility to someone behind but also get rid of that dangerous, you know, appendage on the side of the helmet. You know, there were so many times, you know, as I've kind of come up through my own cycling journey where I've done really stupid things, crossing roads, not looking over my shoulder, veered into the road and I'm looking over my shoulders. There was a time in Colombia, I thought, you definitely used up one of my lives. Anthony couldn't speak to me for about two hours after. He was pale after watching me almost getting knocked down. And it is a hard skill. If Remco's kind of struggles with it occasionally, it is difficult. The mirrors, yeah, again, I think they look terrible. They do have a place. 
I think if this person feels very nervous and wants to get one, but I would really encourage this person, Amy, keep working on your skills. Don't just become reliant on it. Like that's the problem, isn't it? If you get a wing mirror, then do you ever learn to look around? Because you can look around now. But at the start, you were just kind of going for it and hoping there was a gap like. Mm -hmm. I actually think a lot of people do that. I see that with sort of beginner club riders pulling out in the gaps and they just kind of hope there's a gap or hope that the car is going to press the brakes. Everyone's on mobile phones now that I see driving. When I pop up to the traffic lights, everyone has a phone in their hands. No one's looking anymore. Mm, I know, it's scary. Okay, so yes, Amy, go for it, but also work on your skills. I think that's the consensus. Okay, moving on to text super quickly. And Anthony, I know that these are an item that you have in <laughs> your sock drawer. They are the Muck Off waterproof socks and you love them. I love them. I never wear them on the bike, but I absolutely <laughs> love them. I wear them like slippers around the house. They absolutely freak me out. The texture of them, that whole knitted waterproof garb, they set my my teeth on edge. But the reviews from these socks are absolutely amazing and how effective they are. They have a couple of layers basically that will keep out all the wet and people are raving about them online. They're muck off, they're 40 bucks. You can go and try them. I know we're going into summer, but um, it's not really quite summer here in Ireland yet. You still might want to invest in a pair of these. Would you recommend them, Anthony? I wear them as slippers around the house. <laughs> I, I don't know why, I absolutely love them. I, For waterproof socks, I don't really get the idea. Like, I don't really, it's kind of like overshoes, isn't it? Like if it's raining outside, you're getting wet. You know, people are like, oh, have you tried so-and-so overshoes? Yeah, I have. You get wet. Like, there's no overshoes in the world where you don't get wet. You wear velo toes, which are totally just plastic, you know, rubber glove material. It's kind of like a foot condom. Yeah, and they're skin tight and you still get wet. You're not avoiding getting wet if it's raining (laughs) outside. So forget that. So the idea of waterproof socks for me is a little bit of a misnomer. It's like, okay, it's like a waterproof tea bag. It doesn't, there's no function for it. Your feet are (laughs) waterproof at the very end of it, like. (laughs) Okay, so it's like a maybe yes for you, but in a different function. It's a definite yes. They're household slippers. (laughs) They're amazing household slippers. Everyone should have a set. Okay. On that, Anthony? On that bombshell, we'll leave it there. And you're back tomorrow with a solo cast and I'm back again on Monday to get back into it for another week. Have a great weekend and ride safe. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.